For sure, for sure. Today is a day that, well, you know what today is, right? 9-11. And so I want to just read through the text and let you hear Jesus' words, and then I'll come back and pull out three costs that we've got to be willing to pay to follow Jesus that I see here in the text. It starts in verse 25 of Luke chapter 14. Large crowds were following Jesus, were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, Jesus has done this before. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. All right, got your attention now? And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Once you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it. For if you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone will see it and ridicule you. Saying, well, this person began to build but wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able to, with his 10,000 men, to oppose the one coming against him with his 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the others are still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those who do not give up everything, everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fit for neither the soil nor the manure pile. It's thrown out. Then he closes with, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. These are strong words. It feels like it feels like Jesus has again drawn a huge crowd, just like he did before back in chapter nine of the Gospel of Luke. He drew this crowd, and he wants to he wants to cull the crowd, right? He wants to like, okay, some of these people they don't even know why they're here. We need to like, I'm gonna ask, I'm gonna tell them this, and they can figure out: Do I want to stay around this, or am I, do I need to be in a better place? You know, do I need to go grocery shopping? He wants to refine them as well. The ones who were supposed to be following, who knew they wanted to be following, he wants to refine them, their understanding of what it means to follow as well. So he lifts the bar really high for people. He gives them what I see as four situations in this text that illustrate, that are examples of the cost of following Jesus. The first one, this cost of discipleship. Jesus puts the first one in in the context of family relationships, right? One that we can, we can kind of all understand because we've all got family, right? Verse 26, he said, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. What is Jesus talking about? Like, that sounds crazy. Ridiculous, right? That's a ridiculous, would you agree that that is a ridiculous, okay, if you're not so sure that's a ridiculous standard, let me just, let me just say that whenever you come to a passage that is, that, I, I'm telling you, it sounds ridiculous. Whenever you come to a passage in the Bible that's, what's he, what? Like that? I don't know about that one. You always, because we don't understand it, right? We, we, you always study Scripture in light of Scripture. You let the Bible interpret the Bible, right? Before you think, you know what I think it means is blah, 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 blah. Before you do any of that, you look, what does the Bible have to say with, about this idea, this concept of 
What's my responsibility between loving God and loving my family? What, what, is the, what does the Bible say? What does the whole of Scripture have to say about this? And if you were to look very long, like probably if you have a Bible, it has probably a little letter after the verse, and it tells you to go to Matthew 10, 37, verse 37. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, it says this, Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Okay, a little different context, right? A little different thing what Jesus is saying. Okay, so we have these two ideas. One is you got to hate them, and the other one is you got to love them more than me. So which is, which is it? Well, let's do some more digging, right? If you were to keep going in your Bible, you would, you would be taken back to a, that word that's translated hate. You would find it in Genesis chapter 29 where, where Jacob and Leah, I don't know if you remember Jacob and Leah, cow-faced Leah, uh, not if your name's Leah, I very much apologize. That was what the Bible translated her name as. It was funny back then. It's not funny anymore. My bad. Uh, But Rachel and Leah, they were married to the same man, and the Scripture said that Leah was hated and Rachel was loved. The next verse says that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. So it wasn't that Leah was hated. It was that she was loved less than Rachel. Loved less than. If that's not enough to show you that, okay, we might be on to something here. Matthew chapter 5, we're told again and again and again, to what? To love your enemies. So how in the world, it, would, it doesn't make sense if we're to hate our families and love our enemies, right? That makes no sense. So no, what, scripture, what Luke is writing here, when he records the words of Jesus, what Jesus is talking about here is, is to love me more than all these other relationships. Even, even yourself, love me more than... Every other earthly relationship you've got. Put me, allow me to have more influence on your life than everybody else. Hate is simply to be less concerned with. Not to, to, like we think of hate. No, he's saying be less concerned about the opinions of everybody else than of me. Let, Let my opinion carry the most weight in your life, is what he's telling me. This is the first cost of being a disciple that that we have to be willing to pay. And that's the cost of popularity. The cost of popularity. We all want to be popular, right? You want people to like you? Yes, that's why you put on deodorant today. Because you want people to not be offended when you walk by. Right? Otherwise, why did you? Yes. Our tendency is to do a lot of things. Not just personal hygiene, but we do a lot of things because of the opinion of others. Right? For the approval of others. But Jesus says, you have something better to live for. We know that. God has something better for us to live for. A prize in heaven, right? A a future in heaven with God himself. But but while we're still here, we struggle with what other people think. We ask people, what do you think? Why? Does it really matter what they think? If I like it, if I feel like this is the right thing, what does it matter if what other people think? But we ask. Why? Because we want their approval. I mean, it starts when you're really young. Sorry, my man. It starts when you're really young because what, what classes you're going to take in school, what friends you're going to have in school, what, what you're going to get your degree in in college, what career you're going to have, where you're going to live, what you're going to drive, what you're going to put in your house, what kind of car you're going to have. All of that is affected by what other people think. Because you ask people, you think we should move there? 
You think, what do you think about that truck or that car? We want others to be accepting of us. We want to be accepted. What Jesus knew and we need to learn is that the fastest way to lose a desire for God's purpose is to stay focused on the approval of people. Living for the approval of people is the fastest way to get distracted from the purposes of God for your life. People are a distraction. People are a distraction. I know we're not supposed to say that, and don't quote me on that when you get home. But <laughs> people are a distraction. Some people, that's a necessary distraction, right? That, that we're, we're responsible, right? We're in a relationship, and they, they, it's necessary. But, but God says, let me guide your life. For some reason, we Christians, we tend to compromise every chance we get. I don't know why that is. I always counsel uh, couples that are getting married, if they're, if they're in different places spiritually, that they really need to make that an open conversation in their relationship because, because that Christians will always, all, almost always, very rarely have I not seen it, the case where, where the, 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 the Christian will compromise. Husband and wife, they get married, they start out, oh, our kids are going to go to church, they're going to go to church, they're going to go to church. Well, some way along the way, dad usually says, eh, church, I'm going fishing this Sunday, and next Sunday I'm going to think about fishing, and uh, the Sunday after that I'm going to think about something else, and I really don't have time for it anymore. And before you know it, what was going to be a priority for their family, now all of a sudden is, eh. So who gives in? Mom. Mom gives in. Kids don't come. It's usually stereotypical, I'm saying, mom gives in, right? Kids stop coming. Husband stops coming. 80% of children who don't go to church stop going when their dad stops coming. 80% of kids that stop coming that don't go to church stop when dad quit coming. Why? Because dad's the influence of the kids, spiritually. <clears throat> Preachers will avoid topics. Parents will, will not correct things that, that they, they know they ought to correct. All because we want to be accepted by people, right? I've got news for you, though. You've been accepted. God says, I accept you just as you are. Just as you are. So you don't have to work for acceptance by others. You are accepted. God says, you're in, I, I love you. I love you. But God has a purpose for your life. And we can't let the, our, our looking to others be a distraction from that purpose. Your need to be accepted by people is simply that, a distraction. Unfortunately, Jesus offers us a solution, and that is called discipleship. Because discipleship, it really does. It, it, it shrinks my distractions. It, it makes them less of a distraction. One of my favorite stories in Scripture is about this, this, this idea of distraction is uh, in the book of Nehemiah. It's Nehemiah himself. If you don't know the story of Nehemiah, he was, uh, he was a prophet. He was praying and praying. He'd heard stories about the city of Jerusalem being destroyed, and he started praying, like, God, you've got to send somebody to rebuild that city. It, it ought not be that way, right? And he, it, the angst in him just kind of kept building and building and building. And finally God said, you go, Nehemiah. Uh, now, just as an aside, if, if there's something burning in you that much, if you feel like something is, no, no, that's not right, maybe God is saying to you, do something. But back to our story. 
Nehemiah, he goes back to the city, starts rebuilding the walls. He's gathered all the help he can, all the resources he can. He's up on the wall, and he's building, he's building, he's building. And a couple of local kings, city kings, city-state kings, you know, they come over, and they're, they, you know, peddling their influence. They're like, hey, Nehemiah, see you up there. This is, this is pretty awesome work you're doing. Why don't you come on down here and uh, come on, let's have a little talk. You know what Nehemiah says to him? I can't come down. I'm doing something important. And he turns around and goes back to work. <laughs> so yeah, like, like, you guys are not going to be a distraction for me from the purpose that God has sent me here. Like, I am living on purpose, and you're not going to get in my way. We need that same kind of attention to what God has put us here for. Not letting people, not letting our, our concern with people and their wants for us get in the way of what God has called us to do. We're to lock in on following Jesus as our ultimate purpose in life. Following Him. Everything else is truly a distraction. Now, our following Him can mean love our neighbor. It does mean love your neighbor. It does mean serve your spouse. It does mean love your spouse. It means take care of your family. It does mean all of those things. But it means love Jesus first. First. And in following Him and loving Him, we're set free from the burden of popularity. Second, Jesus points out in the passages, is, well, let's look at it, verse 27. Whatever does not, and whoever does not carry their cross cannot, and follow me cannot be my disciple. What? Now, we're reading this, and we know Easter, right? We know the Easter story that Jesus, but these people, they didn't know Easter yet. The Easter hadn't happened yet. So when Jesus says, you've got to take up your cross and follow me, they're like, what are you talking about, dude? We just want you to teach us stuff. We just want to see your miracles. What are you talking about this cross thing? He's told the followers earlier in, in chapter 9, he told them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. These folks had no expectation for the crucifixion. They thought Jesus was going to be the king, right? They, had no, they were not expecting a crucifixion in the future at all. Only Jesus did that. What they did know, though, was that the cross means death. And not just death for the person who's put up there, but the cross, the cross for the condemned man that was put up there, it meant pain, it meant shame, it meant persecution. All of that was, was part of the cross. For the disciple of Jesus, what, what he was saying was that this is, it requires total surrender of yourself to follow me. Give up control of your life. Just like on the cross, when you're nailed to the cross, when you're tied to a cross, you have no more control over your life, what you do or when you, how long you live. Right? You're it. You're stuck there. Same thing with Jesus. He says, take up your cross. Surrender your life. Follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, a pastor, theologian, back uh, at war, during the time of World War II, uh, he was in an opponent of Hitler, he was German, but he was an opponent of Hitler at the time. Um, he wrote this in the book, a very good book on this subject, which is, is much deeper than we could ever get into. I recommend it, though, for you to read it if, you're, if you like those kind of books. It's called The Cost of Discipleship. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote, when, a, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. When Christ calls a man or a woman, the call is to come and die physically, 
yeah, whatever. But die to yourself. Die to myself. That's the call. Die to my way and live to his. Heavy now, right? Yeah. Taking up the cross, you see, refers to the second cost that we have to pay in our lives. And that's the cost of control. You like to be in control? Anybody here other than me? Okay, I tend to be a control freak. Any other control freaks here? I see a couple. A couple couple of you are trying to raise the person next to you's hand. That kind of shows us us that maybe you both have control issues. Uh, Just the other day, I sent a, a text message out to somebody who, who I report to, right? And they replied to me, man, you move too fast. Would you let me, would you give me a chance to do anything? I was like, well, I, I was up all night thinking about it, and I just kind of wanted to put it out there. And he said, no, don't. Just, just let it be. At work, you see, there's the right way, and there's everybody else's way. <laughs> And that creates in me a, a uh, control. I'm a control freak. I mean, I really am. And it, 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 So I find myself trying to do everything, which I know that's not going to work out either. Amen. Uh, that's what I've been told. I know one thing. It's not my son because I went to our house the other day, and I spent years mentoring my son on how to cut grass. I went, to our, I went to our house on Ken Island, and I went in the backyard, and it looked like he had just been driving in the park. I was like, what happened to street lines in the yard like I taught you all those years? You're supposed to go back and forth and not just around and around and around. I don't know where he learned that. I don't know if his mother taught him or what. He thinks he can just drive the lawnmower any way he wants. No. Any backseat drivers here? Oh, come on now. Put your hand up. Own it, because we all want to see you. (laughs) Yeah. In the house, maybe some of you are like control freaks just when it comes to the kitchen. Like the spices have to be just so. Maybe that's some of you. For me, it's where the remote is. There's only one place for the remote to be, and that's on the arm of that one chair. Anywhere else, and nobody knows. I, I never know where it is. I'm a control freak. These are absolutely silly, some of them couple of, maybe one of them, but seriously, maybe you're trying to control a spouse, or a child, a co-worker, a situation, maybe it's a, maybe it's a grandchild, maybe it's, I, I don't know, there's all kinds of things that we can want, we can try to control, but the, I, I know you've found this out, that the more we try to control things, actually the more we fear losing control, the more we fear losing control, the tighter we hold on to things, Right? The tighter we hold on, the more we worry about it, it might slip. We see this today in what's called helicopter parents. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase before or not. Uh, but there's parents that just, just hover over their kids and don't, don't let their kids breathe without, don't let them make a mistake without being right there to fix it or tell them what to do or anything else. You know, it's, I, I've heard it even to this point that, that parents take their kids to college, adults, like 18, 20, 20-year-old, like, Young adults, and then go to class with them. Like, what? Like, let them go. They're not going to break. It, maybe that's not you. But what is it that you really want to control? What is it? In our bulletin today, there's a whole bunch of room. I encourage you to write it down. 
because I got a couple questions to ask you. If you don't write it down, because you're worried somebody, the person you're trying to control is going to read it. <laughs> then don't. But I've got another question for you. Is it possible for you to control it? Whatever it is that you are, you're, you're trying to control in life, is it possible for you to control it? Is it even possible? Oftentimes we try to control things we can't. I don't know why that is, but that's the tendency, right? Every time we do, it leads to stress and anxiety. Every time. So let me ask you, is the stress and anxiety of trying to control the thing that you really can't control worth it? Is the stress and anxiety worth it? Is it producing, is trying to control the thing that you can't control, is it producing the peace that you long for? I'm guessing not. So why not just let it go? Why not just let it go and trust God? That's what Jesus is saying here. You're not going to be able to follow me if you can't let stuff go. If you can't surrender control of your life to God, you're, really, you're not ever going to be effective as following me. Let it go. Trust God. Surrender. That's what accepting the cross is all about, taking it up and following me. It's surrendering our life to God. Accepting that He allows, everything that He allows to come into our life, His way, His timing, His purposes, right? That as we follow Jesus, we get closer to Jesus, we go deeper in our relationship with Jesus, and in that, what actually happens to me is that as I grow closer to Jesus, I actually become more free to give up control. As I get closer to Jesus, I trust him more. I give up control. I surrender. I pay the cost of control. Control, popularity, and the third one is regret. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I'll be glad to give that one up, right? I'll be glad to pay that one. That's the point, I think, of the next two stories that he told in the scripture today. The first one was a man building a tower, you remember? And he didn't have enough money to finish the tower. And the second one was a king who was, who was called out to war, and he said, I better figure out if I got enough men, if my 10,000 can beat their 20,000, if I have the resources and everything necessary before I just run out there and waste everything. And everybody says, ah, look at that fool, right? Nope, nobody wants to do that. Because we wish we can go back and do it over again, but at that point, you can't. You can't. Jesus says, following me leads to discipline. Not regret. To discipline, not regret. Why do you need discipline? Well, I got bad news for you. Bad news. If you're a follower of Jesus, and even if you're not a follower of Jesus, actually, if you're just alive, if you just took a breath in the last 30 seconds to a minute, life is going to be hard. Life is going to be hard for you. Sorry to be the one to tell you that, but it's probably not a surprise. But in the difficulty of life, we have choices about what sort of difficulty we're going to face. And in life, it's been said by, by a very wise person, right? Life, our life is the, the sum total of our choices. So we can choose to have ongoing difficulties that are forced upon us by the world and by other people. Or we can put upon ourselves, we can choose 
the difficulty, the discomfort of discipline. The temporary discomfort of discipline. Jesus says, don't follow me if you aren't willing to be disciplined. If you aren't willing to leave the way of regret, wishing I woulda, coulda, shoulda, behind. If you're not willing to leave that behind, then don't follow me. If, you can't, if you're not willing to take on a disciplined life, don't follow me. See, discipleship enables us to, to experience the fruit of dis- discipline and avoid the pain of regret. And pa- regret has full of pain. Many of us know that. But it amazes me how often we choose regret over discipline. Maybe we don't choose it, but, but we do, right? We ignore what we're supposed to do. We fail to discipline ourselves. We leave ourselves open to pain. <laughs> How many times have you said, there I go, did it again. There I go, did it again. Why? Because we weren't disciplined. We saw it coming, and we didn't get out of the way. The car just ran right over us. Paul the Apostle, he wrote, in the, he wrote half the books in the New Testament. Half of them he wrote. And he wrote about this idea of, of uh, the, the pursuit of discipline, life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 and 25, he said this, Don't you realize that in a race everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So, run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. He said, you're already running. Run it, run disciplined. Run to win. And for Paul and what Christ Jesus is talking about is run for the kingdom purpose of your life. I mean, he says, you're already married. Why not have a God-glorifying marriage? Run for that. You already have a job. Why not glorify God in your career? You've got neighbors? Great. Why not, have a, why not glorify God in that friendship? Your parent, your grandparent? Why not, why not pass on? Why not show the world, show, teach others to live the life that you've been called to? What it means, show them Christ and glorify God in the process. Discipleship, you see, comes in when we when we start making daily decisions, daily decisions, choosing what we want now, between what we want now and what we want most. We all have things that we want now and things that we want most, right? Don't you have like a whole category of things you want, right? Sit in all kinds of buckets. Discipline is choosing the right thing because, again, it's the, the sum total of your choices, because being close to Jesus shapes our decisions and our choices. So let me ask you, what do you want most in life? What do you want most right now? What do you want most in life right now? At this point in your life, what is it that you want most? You probably need more than five seconds to think of that, discern that. But I encourage you, there, there's room in there. Write it down. Is it to start a new business? Is it to retire in a particular place, in a particular way? Is it to get married? 
Is it to find a ministry that, that you can invest your life into? What is it that you want most? Get it in your mind. Now I have another question for you. What do you need to do now? What do you need to do now in order to pursue what you want most? See, I'm not asking you what you want now. I'm asking you what you need to do now in order to be about pursuing the thing that you want the most. It's about your next step. You see, when you consider all the things that a life of following Jesus brings into our lives, when you consider everything that, when you, when you consider the blessings of following Jesus, giving up popularity is easy when your life is, gets purpose in exchange, right? Giving up control is pretty simple when you get peace in return. Giving up regret makes perfect sense when your life gets disciplined. Jesus closes this passage with some strong words. Words that, I'll be honest with you, uh, I struggle with sharing because I'm tempted to gloss over them pretty quickly. Words that as a disciple seeking to live into the purpose that God has put on me, because I, I'm in conflict because for two reasons. One, I don't want anybody here who's a Christian to doubt their salvation. If you love Jesus, I don't want to say anything that would cause you to think you're not, you haven't surrendered enough, right? And, but the other side of that is, is that I don't want anyone here who hasn't surrendered to actually go through life thinking that, oh, me and God are good. Both of those would be bad, Right? Both of those will be bad. To make Christians doubt and the unsaved to think they're good. To continue towards a life of death and separation from God. So what am I left with? How do I walk that line? I, I read the scripture and ask the Holy Spirit to impress upon you the truth of where you are. And that's these words that are here on the screen. The closing verses. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. What good is salt if it's not salty? None. It's not any good for nothing. Our lives are absolutely, if you're a Christian, your life is to be marked by Christian character. By, the, by, by Christ. Your life is to be marked by Christ. But what good is striving to appear to be Christ-like without having, or that's having religion in your life, right? What good is it to strive to have religion without having a relationship with Christ himself? Nothing. It's a waste of your time. The relationship has got, see, religion was given to people so that they could live into the relationship with God that he'd given them. Jesus calls us to be in relationship with him first and love him back. Right? He, he offers himself. We respond to him. The relationship must come first. The cost of discipleship is our lives, your whole life, lived from God, 
for God. That's That's the cost of discipleship. Your whole life. The life that God gave you for him. That's it. I want to close with some words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer from his book, The Cost of Discipleship. It's a great book, again. But uh, you can read these words. I'm just going to read them out loud. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man or a woman his life. It's grace because it gives them the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. That's good news, people. I'd like to pray for you. Lord, we thank you for what you've done in and through us, God. We thank you for the work that you have yet to do. Father, for those of us who are here today who are convicted in our following or lack of following, teach us, Lord. Show us. Stay close to us. For those who are here today who have just been drained spiritually, God, I pray in this that we can find that that you are the source of our encouragement, of our hope, That when we run dry, you're the place where we go back. You're the well of living water that we return to. You're the one. It's not up to us. When we follow you, God, you take the responsibility to give us, to meet our needs spiritually, physically, and every other way. We just trust and follow. For others that are here today, Lord, that that maybe not living a surrendered life, I pray that, that these words and I pray these words entice them to trust you. To surrender. Knowing that that the reward, the, the, the benefit, the, 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 the what you give back into our lives is far greater and beyond what anything, any little thing that we might give up for your glory. Anything that you may require of us, God, you more than meet it on the other side. We thank you for that, God, that you are always faithful. That you don't want something from us, but you want something for us. And for that, Lord, we praise you. Thank you for teaching us that, Lord. If you're here today, and, and just you can just... You feel like God is calling you into a relationship with Him. Just, just pray a, a simple prayer of surrender. Just, you can just pray this, and you can pray it out loud. Actually, I'm gonna ask us all to pray it out loud. Everybody, we can all pray together because we should all, we all need to pray this. Father God, thank you for loving me. I know that 
you died for me. And that in you, I have a new life. Help me to live for you, God. Forgive me of my sin, I thank you. I love you. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I just want to say welcome to the family. A prayer of surrender, of trusting God, that he will... He meets you here in this place and in this time. And he wants to give you a new life. He's giving you a new life. It's yours to accept and walk with today and every day. Amen? Amen. We're going to sing one more song, right, Artie? Amen. I invite you, if you would, as, as you start to live this new life out, a couple of opportunities I have for you. One is next Saturday at 8 a.m. We're going to gather together. We're going we're to meet at the charge office at 8 o'clock next Saturday. Uh, and then we're going to go over and park in John A.'s yard. <coughs> John A. didn't know that. But, uh, but Johnny's neighbor has asked for some help. And so we're going to go over and help him around his yard, help him winterize his house and that kind of stuff. So if you're kind of handy or you just like getting your hands dirty, the next Saturday is the place to be. We're going we're gonna to be serving our neighbor, loving our neighbors. We're doing mission Saturdays. We're going to do them every third Saturday of every month. This is the first one we've done in a while. Uh, so we're going to do that this coming Saturday, the 17th, between 8 and lunchtime, 8 and 1 o'clock. If you bring lunch, you're going to be there later. Uh, but I'm going to go eat. But, uh, but we should be, if we have enough folks there, we should be out of there by lunchtime. So uh, please come and bring some tools, whatever you need to help out around the house. Bring a hedge trimmer, Johnny says. He's got serious hedges. Uh, so thank you for that in advance. And next Wednesday, we start up our Rock Solid Kids and family dinner and all that. Small groups are going to start up because we're starting a new message series on Sunday. Uh, so if you haven't been a part of a small group, Wednesday nights, if, if you're not in a small group, Wednesday night's a great place. Come and have dinner. You can stick around and be a part of a small group that night even. Uh, that would be a great way to do that, and you kind of be a part of the excitement. So uh, if, if you're part of one, then great. As far as I know, all the small groups here in church are going to be a, doing the book study that we're starting next week. All right? Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here today. I was listening to the sermon and thinking about the next song that we're getting ready to sing, Jesus, Savior, Paul at Me. And... Uh, 